Please note that due to technical difficulties, the last 10 minutes of this message were not recorded and are therefore unavailable. We apologize for any inconvenience. Hey, we're in the, we're in the book of James uh, and we're just trekking our way through that. We had a really cool break last week. I thought last week was just really nice for us to stop and just hear stories uh, from the church family and just to get a bit of an idea of what was going on around the place. And there's some things there for us to be keeping, uh, praying about. And there's some people that we need to be keeping on getting around and loving and making sure that we're doing that. And so that'd be great. But we're in this book of James and James has written this book. Uh, as kind of like a diagnostic health check over the Christian life. And it's a health check to check on the genuineness, the authenticity, the realness of our faith. And the key indicator or the key symptom, if you like, that James is saying an easy kind of diagnostic tool to see if your faith is real, to see if it's genuine, is works. Does your faith have any works? Does that, um, does that profession you have of faith actually uh, get uh, work? Worked out in a practice that matches it, and uh, and this week is just kind of like where James just goes, you don't have works, you don't have faith, okay? And we're like, oh yeah, we, that's a bit of a double take as we hear that. And one of the reasons for it is if you've been a part of this church family for the last sort of eight years, uh, um, Sandy and I, you know, Sandy and I, here you go, Sandy and I start our ninth year at Freeway next month. Uh, that is. <laughs> That's nice. That's kind of crazy to think about. Um, kids have left home and uh, lots has happened since we've been here. But if you've been here for those eight years, um, you've heard on, on constant repeat, week in and, and week out, that the Christian life, the Christian faith, this experience of salvation from start to finish is a product of God's grace and our faith and our trust in Jesus that, that the means of our justification, how we are restored, how we are made right with God is, is through the initiated grace of God. And then that produces in us faith in the work of Jesus on our behalf. So we are saved. Uh, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's, that's our little message, if you like. Our salvation comes via our belief and our trust that God in Jesus is rescuing us from the coming wrath of God. Uh, And we don't often like to talk about the wrath of God because that's just like, oh, we want God to be loving and just a fairy up in the sky, you know, looking after us all. But the the reality is, and here's a way of thinking about it. I thought about this this morning as I was going, man, just going to say the wrath of God. But, but imagine like if you had some kids and you'd poured your life into these kids and you'd given them a safe place to live, a great place to live. You'd done everything so that they would flourish and that they would have a good life and, and you'd kind of done everything so that they would just enjoy life and enjoy you. And then one day they just got up and shook their fist at you and said, I want nothing to do with you. I don't want to enjoy anything you've given me or you. And in fact, I'm going to spend the rest of my life just dishonoring your name and burning your reputation into the ground. How do you like those apples? Go and get stuffed. And as I do, my witness about you is going to be that you're an abusive parent. You're not a good parent. That's what we're going to do. Like if your kid turned around and said that to you, you'd be like, hmm, where's the gun? Yeah? No, maybe not. That's just me. But 
if you're trying to get a picture about why God has wrath towards sin, that's it. Because those he created to enjoy him and enjoy life and all these kinds of things and to, and to bear witness to his good name, turned around and said, you know what? The witness that we're going to give about you is a lie and a false testimony and we're going to mock and shame and whatever, even though you created us and give us every good thing. So you would think God fortunately isn't like me. He's not going to the cabin grabbing the gun. His good and planned response was to send Jesus and say, I know, I know you want to behave like that, but I still want you. I still want you back in relationship with me. And the whole Bible leads to this story about Jesus and how he comes to bring us back into relationship to make us children again of God. Like that's the story. And here's the thing. Nothing we do contributes to that, to our salvation, but rather it's God. It's God's gracious gift to us. He's moving toward rebellion. He's moving towards rebels. And as he does, the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us of our sin and our stupidity toward God. And assures us of God's approval of us in Jesus. That is good news. It's a faith that says, Father, accept me not because of what I've done or what I will ever do, but because of what Jesus has done in my place. And you know, as John begins his gospel, he tells us that if that's, if that's our profession of faith, then we are adopted into the family of God and given the rights of the children of God. Uh, we're like heirs to everything he has. Uh, we're, given, we're heirs to God as an eternally loving father and all his goodness is back on the table for us. Yeah? And I have this little phrase from Tim Keller that I like to use because I think it's really great to sum up the tension of that reality that you are far more wicked than you would ever dare naturally admit. Like we don't want to put on the table just how bad we really are at times. And yet at the same time, uh, you are far more loved than you ever dare dream about. And we just put faith in that. That on the cross, Jesus has dealt with our wickedness. And he has dealt with God's just judgment toward that. And that on the cross, Jesus has demonstrated the nature and the love of God towards sinners. And that's why John just sums it all up. He says, the initiated grace of God is look, it's like this. For God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way, that he sent his only son, that he gave his only son, so that whoever just believed in him, whoever just had faith in him, would not die, but would have eternal life, would have the same quality of life, the same relational quality of life that Jesus has with the Father. That's what's being talked about here, not just a long time alive. Faith is the ongoing uh, trusting of the news about what Jesus has done, uh, what has been done by us, sorry, by Jesus, to put us back into a right relationship with God. It's trust that we actually need saving. It's trust that Jesus died for our sins. It's trust that he rose from the dead, fulfilling all the hope and all the promises of Scripture in a way that actually applies them to us. And it's trust that Jesus will complete this work of grace in us. Never let us go ever again. At the heart of Christianity is a God who serves you, not a God you must serve, that you must please, that you must impress. A God of grace 
who establishes our faith and maintains our faith. Grace. And what's so beautiful about this is that it means faith, the condition of our salvation and our relationship with God is not contingent on us, on our goodness, on our ability to be awesome, or for that matter, for our ability to continue to be awesome, but on God's goodness and His ability to be awesome. And Jesus promised to never stop serving us as you grow in maturity of this experience and as you progressively but imperfectly but undeniably transform. And we discussed that a few weeks ago about what that looks like, that we're transforming from one glory to another, that there's something happening in us, that, that, that seeds of bitterness that we used to foster once upon a time are, are dying, that, that all kinds of attitudes and, and things that we used to have are dying because as we grow in love of God, we're growing in love of life and others. That's what's happening. Faith in that is all you need, right? To be justified before God, you don't work for it. In fact, you can't work for it. You can't earn your salvation. The means of justification is just grace. And faith in that is all you need. I mean, that's, that's Paul's whole argument in Romans, right? That we are justified by faith alone and not by works and not by what we do. Like, I preach it every week. We sing about it every week. Uh, we've probably got it on a fridge magnet somewhere at home. So what is James now doing, saying, well, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that kind of faith save him? And he finishes off in verse 26 by saying, for as the body... Uh, apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Has, has James kind of gone rogue? Is he, is he unaware of Paul? Is he, is he at odds? What's, what's, what's going on? No, not one little bit. James is fully aware of Paul. Like Some people like to argue that this is a bit of a punch on between James and Paul, but that's not happening here. Remember when we started, we said these two brothers got together and they swapped notes on, on, on the grace of God towards them in Jerusalem. You read about it in Galatians 1, uh, that, they, that they met together and talked about their salvation stories. And, and we see that James totally agrees with Paul, that they're in agreement with each other, because at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, James and Paul are two of the contributing figures to, to the findings that regardless of your background, uh, you are saved uh, by grace and faith in Jesus and belief in him. Like They both agree. They're both there. They're singing the same song. And all through his letter, James leaves these little clues and Easter eggs, if you like, because we're heading into Easter, of, of, his, that he, of this assumption that he has of the gospel according to the apostolic teaching, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. That's in this book. Like in verse 5, just a little bit further up here, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, James says, it, it is God who chose us to be heirs of the kingdom of God. So Christians inherit the kingdom of God. It's theirs by virtue of a relationship with God that God has given to them. They didn't work for this kingdom. They didn't have to you know, do any labor in the fields. It's, it's theirs as heirs. They just get it. It's a relational gift. Eternal life is inherited. You, you don't work for it. You just receive it because you're part of the family. 
In chapter 1, verse 21, James has said it's the implanted word. It's that word that was put in you. Uh, You received it. You, You didn't do anything for it, which is able to save your soul. And it is coming to life in your soul. It's the coming to life in your soul of God's word that leads you to salvation. And we're going to see some of the symptoms of that salvation. In James chapter 1.18 he says, uh, Of his own will God brought us forth by the word of truth. So we were brought forth. That means we were brought into his family through the gospel. That's what that little phrase means. We didn't work for it. We heard it. We received it. We trusted it in faith. And there we were. James is not at odds with the means of our justification being through faith. But what he's doing here in this chapter, what he's doing here in this whole book, is hitting head on the, the view of justification that allows for faith to remain alone. A faith that leads to no uh, evidence of transformed way of life. James says that's a bogus faith with no value at all. That kind of faith could not have as its means the active grace of God. James is saying that a faith that has as its means the grace of God will prove itself in works, which is another way uh, of saying the word um, just, it's kind of like justified can get used uh, in its original content to say that it's the means through which something is established, the means through which, so in the Christian context, the means through which we are made right with God. And another use of this word is that justification is the proof of something. You'll see it come to life. And so that's how James is grabbing it. He's using it to say justification also proves uh, that the means has taken place. So listen. Faith is not something that we self-determine. It's not a self-determined concept. Faith is designed by God to be an environment in which you are led to an ever-increasing trust, enjoyment, and obedience of God. Like That's the purpose of faith. In, in such a way that it just flows out of you that you would be loving towards others. It's not a list of do's. It's not a list of don'ts. But rather what it is, is it's, it's relational. It's come and see me, not me, but God. Come and see me, desire me, know me, enjoy me, live in my goodness. Faith is relational. And that relationship with God bleeds out into everything else, into those that we call brothers and sisters in Christ, into those that we would call our neighbors. And Paul's in total agreements with James. In Romans 6, Paul expects that Christians will live in a manner appropriate for those who have, been, who have been by grace set free from sin and its destructive grip on life and set free from the wages of that sin, which is death. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul's argument is exactly the same as James. There's, there is a faith out there that's a sham. It's a counterfeit And that faith has no works. That faith uh, is just a dead religious practice expressed through creeds and confessions. But it never gets expressed through mercy and justice. And earlier on in his letter in 2 Corinthians in chapter 8 and 9, he's talking about this work of grace that must be in the church. The absence of it is not... um, The kind of faith that emerges from the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. James and Paul are clear that the word, the gospel, produces faith that brings 
evidential proof by a change to your practice, to your conduct, not merely a new set of uh, propositions. You know what I mean? As Martin Luther points out, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. Luther's point is James's point, that true gospel belief in the work of Jesus on our behalf produces a faith that leads to care for the poor, that, that leads to, to, to good works, good works that James summarized at the end of chapter 1, that, 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 that must begin with you know, the love of God. James's point is that there is a kind of faith out there that is not a product of the implanted word, but a product of the recited word. Just, you know, you can, you can recite a few things. There's a kind of faith where our claims are not an accurate reflection of what we really think and believe. But, says James, our deeds are, like what we do points back to what we really believe. We do not always live the way we say we believe, but we always believe what we live out. It's one thing to claim to be a Christian, but if that claim is not accompanied by evidence, by proof of faith, then that faith, James is saying, is dead. It's not a faith that leads to life in your life. You know, the product of faith is maturing in you. It's not a faith that leads to life in those around you. There's no good works. There's no... There's no care for the poor, which is a generalization. Faith should have, uh, it should be working on you to mature you. It should be working in you to minister to those around you, to others. So James is like, well, what good is a faith that doesn't do either of those things? What good is a kind of faith to the person who claims it? And what good is that kind of faith to the people who encounter such a person? It's no good. It hasn't saved that actual person. And, and, and it's not bearing witness to the love of God that should be in their life. The love of God for the lost, the love of God for the poor and the needy. It's got no practical expression about it. So, so here is where we defame God. We give a false picture of who God is. It's not in my notes, but just hit me. What, what a terrible thing if the Christian church was responsible for that. That we actually lived out a lie of what God's heart for the world is because our faith was just merely intellectual ascent. It never actually dropped into our hearts. True grace always results in changed lives of holiness and justice. Faith shapes how we live. It has a purpose. God does not give us faith simply just as some cold intellectual exercise, not, not just something as we just kind of hold there as a prescription and then later we'll get into heaven. Faith is seen in restored relationships, restored relationships with God and restored relationships with others. Faith adopts us into this eternal relationship with a loving God. Faith is a relationship with God and encountering with God that does not, cannot leave you the same way. It always must transform you to become more and more like His Son. So faith is at work in you and on you to continue to make you more and more like Jesus. And as Josh kind of pointed out to us a couple of weeks ago, that's not an, that's not an exercise in abstract uh, intellectualism either. We have Jesus as a model and, and a means to achieve 
these things. So faith that is evidenced through works, works that are nehimi, works that are imperfect. We don't get it all right. We don't even but but we're pursuing them imperfectly. We're progressing in them imperfectly. Loving God and, and others. These things are the good. They are good. It's not what good, they are good. They have a goodness about them because it's maturing the believer and it's growing them in relationship with God. That's the internal works, if you like. Those internal works then lead to external works of mercy and justice, caring for the poor. We get to see them. There must be something James is saying. So James then gives us this negative example in verses 15 to 17 to show what faith that is dead and has no good to others looks like. A faith that has not actually encountered the means of salvation and therefore sees no obligation, feels no motive to live out its symptoms. It can be expressed comfortably in words without any a personal cost or any grief toward cons- 